Hello. No sponsor for today's episode of How to Fail because I wanted to hand the microphone over to an organisation that is very close to my heart. They are the Samaritans, a truly fantastic charity, and I'm extremely proud to be a Samaritans ambassador. So I asked them what they wanted me to say today and what they want me to say involves some discussion of suicide because I wanted to share some information on their current campaign that focuses on talking about suicide online safely. The things we say online can make a difference, whether you're trying to raise awareness, you've seen something in the media, or you're sharing your personal experience. To help talk about this safely, you can use a trigger warning, you can focus on feelings rather than behaviours, you can include a link to a support organisation such as Samaritans, and share messages of support and hope. Posting safely, and I cannot emphasise this enough, can even reduce the risk of suicidal feelings and behaviours in others, and, crucially, encourage people to seek help. Samaritans are there for anyone who is struggling. Their phone lines are open 24-7 every single day of the year. You can also email them on joe at samaritans.org. That's Joe, J-O. And there's lots of support and information on their website, samaritans.org as well. So thank you very, very much to the Samaritans for all the incredible work they and their volunteers do every single day of the year. We really, really appreciate it. And now on with the show. Hello and welcome to How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, the podcast that celebrates the things that haven't gone right. This is a podcast about learning from our mistakes and understanding that why we fail ultimately makes us stronger. Because learning how to fail in life actually means learning how to succeed better. I'm your host, author and journalist Elizabeth Day, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what they've learned from failure. Ramla Ali is a boxer, but not just any boxer. She is the first Somali boxer to compete at the Olympic Games. The achievement is all the more extraordinary when you consider her backstory. Ali was born in Mogadishu shortly before the outbreak of a brutal civil war. After her eldest brother was killed by a grenade while playing in the garden, the family embarked on a perilous journey to the UK – first travelling to Kenya on a small sailboat crammed with more than 200 people. The family lived in Kenya for a year, reliant on UNICEF food rations, before finally arriving in London in 1992 and applying for asylum. At school, Ali was bullied and overweight. She initially took up boxing as a way of getting healthy, even though as a young Muslim woman, this was frowned upon. To begin with, she kept her boxing secret from her family. When they found out and implored her to stop, she continued anyway, quickly climbing through the ranks of amateur boxing after winning her first fight in 2011. She recently competed in the Tokyo Olympics. Ali has a first in law from SOAS and earns the bulk of her money for boxing by modelling. She's been on the cover of Vogue and Elle and has contracts with Nike and Cartier. But 
never having forgotten her start in life, Ali is also an activist. She is a UNICEF ambassador and in 2018 she launched Sisters Club, a free self-defence class for vulnerable women in London, which she plans to expand nationwide. Her debut book, Not Without a Fight, is part memoir, part self-help and is published tomorrow. Sometimes you have to face your fears and turn your vulnerabilities into your advantages, Ali writes. That is how you learn to be your own champion. Ramla Ali, welcome to How to Fail. <laughs> oh my God, you make me blush. Honestly, that was, that was so sweet. Thank you. We are so excited to have you. You are our first boxer. So... Yes, amazing. add that to your CV. Yes. <laughs> I will, I will definitely. Oh, that's amazing to know. Thank you. Yeah. That quote that I ended on is from your excellent book, Not Without a Fight. And I wondered if I could ask you what your biggest fear is, because I read somewhere that you have a fear of losing. Do you think that's your biggest fear? I think I did say that once before. I have a fear of losing. Like a lot of people always say to me, before you go and fight, how do you feel? Are you scared? And the first thing I always say is, I'm not scared of getting hurt because obviously I'm doing the sport of boxing. I know what I'm getting myself into. Cuts, bruises, black eyes, bloody noses, things like that. But my biggest fear is just losing. You know, you've trained so hard for so long you get in the ring maybe for that one moment your body lets you down because you know as an athlete you can't be 100% all the time and you know your body lets you down or for whatever reason you just don't perform to the best of your ability and then you lose and for me that is so heartbreaking that is definitely one of my biggest fears but more than that I think one of my biggest fears is just the fear of being average I don't want to be average I want to be phenomenal and I know that sounds so vain, <laughs> but... It sounds great. It's like, as an athlete and as someone that's just worked so hard for such a long time, a majority of it being in secret and without any, like, family support whatsoever, there's always that fear of being average. I don't want all those years of what I went through to just be in vain. So I think those are, like, my biggest fears, losing and the fear of being average. So you don't fear the pain? You don't fear the cuts and the bruises? and No, never. Well, like you're in the ring and then adrenaline is just rushing through your body and anything that happens, you don't really feel it until you are out of the ring and the adrenaline dies down and then you're just like, oh God, I feel like I've been in a car crash. But like that moment in time when you're on the canvas in the ring, you literally don't feel anything. So I never have a fear of getting hurt. It's like I said, I, I know what I'm getting myself into. I know boxing is a dangerous sport. I just have this really big fear of losing. I hate losing. <laughs> I, I just hate, I've always been competitive in school, at home, with friends. I've, everybody knows me to be uber competitive. I think that's why a team sport would have never been good for me. <laughs> Because yeah, yeah. collectively you have to support, like if one person let me down and I feel like one person let the team down, I would hate that. So I know with a sport like boxing that's individual, the fate is in my hands. And I think I prefer that to like a team sport. So when you lose, which 
obviously doesn't happen very often but when you know it, ha- it happens a lot <laughs> but I've always I've always said that because I've lost a lot I'm more relatable you have mm. like the Usain Bolts of this world and like I don't know the Serena Williams of this world and like you hardly ever see them losing and as a normal human being it's easier to relate to somebody that has experienced loss and failure than somebody that you just consider is superhuman so I think for me, I'm more relatable. I love them. that. I mean, that is so the message of this podcast as well, because yeah. you just, you can't grow without losing, without failure. But when you do lose, what do you do with your feelings? Do you turn the criticism inwards? Do you blame yourself? So, you know, I always give myself 24 to 48 hours. When I lose or when I win, there's a 48 hour period of celebrating or crying. And then beyond that, that's set, it's forgotten about. And I think that's how it should be. You shouldn't dwell on the past for too long. Otherwise, it keeps holding you back. So when I do lose, I use that as fuel for the next challenge. So I reflect back on all the mistakes that I made and I say to myself, right, I'm not doing this again. This is what I did wrong. Okay, let's work on it. Let's improve it. So the next time it doesn't happen again, because the feeling of losing is so heartbreaking that who wants to be in that position all the time? I don't think anybody will put their hands up to that. So anytime there is a loss or there is a failure, reflect back on it, find out why it was what it was, try and improve on it so it doesn't happen again. I think that's such good advice. And I also think it's really good for people to hear that you don't need to feel immediately okay about everything, that you have this like 24 to 48 hour processing period where you come to terms with it. So thank you for sharing that. It was quite hard, I have to say, to put your extraordinary life story into an introduction. Yes. It is very rare and it's a real honour for me to talk to someone who has been through so much at such a comparatively young age and I wonder how much you feel your fighting genes are inherited from your parents who clearly went through so much and have such strength of character. Yeah, you know, I've been asked a few questions before, like, who is your biggest inspiration and who is your role model? I feel like every time I say this, it's so cheesy because everybody says it. But I <laughs> I feel like everybody just says it. But for me, I do feel like my mum is my biggest hero, my biggest inspiration. And it's just like what you've said, like she's been through so much. She's lost a child. She's seen the country that she's loved and grown up in crumble before her very eyes. Had to move to like whole new work, like Western society, a society that she didn't really know anything about. She doesn't speak the language, you know. But above everything, she's never once complained. She's always just got on with it. You know, she doesn't use her failures like she doesn't moan about everything that she's been through and all her failures and all her disappointments. She just gets on with it. And like for me, that is a true warrior. She is honestly the best fighter I've ever known. Like She's a better fighter than me. And I've always said that. And I know it sounds cheesy for me to say my mum's my biggest inspiration, but she really is, honestly. It doesn't sound cheesy. It sounds so beautiful. It really does. And I mentioned earlier that you were a baby when your family left Somalia. So you don't remember it. But 
that you didn't discover a lot of this until you were in your 20s, is that right? Oh, 100%. I got married in 2016 and Richard, my husband, being who he is, very inquisitive, always asks a lot of questions. It was only when I got married to him that I found out the ins and outs of everything that had happened because he wanted to know everything about me and I had no answers to give him. So he decided to ask my mum via the the medium of an interpreter, not me, because my smiley's not that good. But he found out everything. And it was in those conversations that he had with my mum that I found out a lot about my past. That's why I say, like, my mum is the best fighter that I've known. Like, she's been through so much. And I only just learned about it not too long ago, which is really strange. And I realise now why she's never opened up about it, because it's just been so painful for her. What does being Somalian mean to you now? I have this sense of pride of being Somali. Like, I didn't, growing up in school, it was always, I'm going to use a colloquial word of diss. Do you know what diss is? Mm. (laughs) It was always a diss. (laughs) It was always a diss to be Somali. Being Somali, there was an association of being a thief, being a pirate, coming from a country that's just war-stricken. And, you know, I always used to hide that I was Somali. I used to hide that I was a refugee to everyone because back then kids were just so cruel. You know, they bullied me for being overweight. Could you imagine what they'd have done if they found out that I was this Somali refugee? So I just hid it. And I would always tell people that I was from different places in the world. I'd make things up. And, you know, half the time it was believable. But, and half the time people were just like, oh, are you telling the truth? But right now, I have this amazing sense of pride for being Somali. I was able to represent Somalia in one of the biggest sporting platforms in the world. And it's really nice to see how together the Somali community is all over the world. There's so much support that just gets poured in every day on social media for me of, you know, young Somalis, old Somalis telling me how proud they are of me. And it's quite nice. It's quite nice to know that I have the support of, like, a really big community. And is your mother proud of you? Oh, 100%. Now that she knows I'm competing, she, you know, calls me a lot. She asks me how training is going. She asks me when the next competition is coming up. And she's now the first person I'll call before I compete and the first person I call when I compete. And she always says she's so proud and I performed really well. And it's just those really nice words that I wish I had once upon a time. But I'm glad it has come now. I'm glad that it came now if that makes what am yeah, I trying to say it does. I'm glad that it came rather than never coming at all yes that's what I was trying to yes. say <laughs> yes we'll get into that a bit more when we talk about your failures but before I get on to them you don't know your own birthday why is that well I was born at the start of the civil war everything was just getting destroyed hospitals schools homes Not a lot of people were paying attention to certificates of, like, birth, marriage, death, things like that. And, like, a lot of people will say to me, well, surely your mum would know how old you are. And I always say to them, during this time, my mum lost a child in, like, one of the most horrific ways possible. It's understandable that she has no memories of before that date. So I've never been angry with my mum 
for not remembering how old I was. I'm just glad that she brought us to safety. I'm glad that I was able to have a good education. I was able to, you know, have a home-cooked meal every day, a roof over my head. I once said that birthdays are like a Western privilege. and yeah. <laughs> But now I think health is just so important. Yes, it would be nice to know my date of birth, but I'm healthy and that's all that matters. Do you think that you get some of your drive at least from the idea that your brother is no longer here but you are and you can make an impact on the world through your existence do you think that's where your drive comes from possibly it's like I said I I have this fear of being average and I don't want all my years of sacrifice and being a rebel and disobeying my parents to just go to waste I want to prove that everything that I'd sacrificed in this world was not for nothing. And I think a lot of my drive comes from that. A lot of my drive comes from proving people wrong, making my parents happy, and most importantly, just making them like really proud of me. That's where I think most of it comes from. Let's talk about your first failure, which is when you saw yourself on one of your sister's wedding videos and you were a young teenager at the time, what happened? I saw myself, so this is back then when a video guy comes in, records the wedding, does like cheesy edits, you know, puts your face on like (laughs) Jack and Rose Dawson on Titanic. It was so bad. (laughs) That's hilarious. So bad. But then I remember sitting down as a family watching this video and it was the first time I'd seen myself. I'd seen how big I became I used to hate seeing myself in mirrors. I'd get changed in the dark constantly. I wouldn't take a look at myself before I left the house. And it was the first time I had to come face to face with myself. And for me, that was like one of my biggest failures because I saw for the first time how big I'd become. And, you know, it's like I said, weight is not something that should be measured with success and fulfillment but that moment in time it was a reminder of the lack of discipline I had within myself the what's the word I mean was it a lack of self-worth it was like a lack of discipline lack of self-control there was yeah a lack of pride and self-worth yeah how had it got to that point You know, back then, there wasn't this, like, age of social media where on Instagram, there are, like, pages upon pages dedicated to workouts of the day or this is a healthy meal and it's this many calories. Like, you didn't have any of that. And there was, like, this horrible cycle of you get bullied and then you eat your feelings because you've been getting bullied. And then you're eating your feelings, you're getting bigger and you're you keep getting bullied like it was just this horrible cycle that was just never ending and I think seeing myself on that video it just showed how the lack of pride I had in my appearance and in my mental health I think I was really depressed I was going through like stages of eating disorders I eat so much to the point where I was feeling really sick but then I just keep going because it made me feel good and I think that was a big failure for me and weight shouldn't determine someone's happiness or fulfillment but I was far from happy that moment in time and I think that moment 
triggered what is now the rest of my life because if I hadn't have seen myself in that video I'd have never started wanting to lose weight and then in that I'd have never started to go to boxer size and then pick up boxing and then be in the position that I am today so that moment did trigger a huge thing in my life but I feel like I did fail myself because there was this lack of pride I had in myself and in my appearance and x y and z but I want to say that failure shouldn't be determined by weight if that makes sense it makes total sense and I think you've explained that really eloquently that it wasn't for you about what weight you were it was for you seeing you reflected to yourself as deeply unhappy and having lost the control that the bullies bullied out of you. Can I ask you a bit about being bullied? Because I do think that that's something that so many people go through and it's really salutary for listeners to hear that you can go through that school and still make a success of your life and get over it. What was that experience like for you and what happened with the bullies at school? It's quite weird because... The bullies now have found me on Instagram, <laughs> will message me things like, well, you didn't get bullied in school, did you? And you think to yourself, there's so many forms of bullying and only the person who's experiencing it knows that it's happening. Bullies will often not know what they're doing. And that's really hard to take because these bullies would now message me saying, what are you talking about? You were never bullied in school. And then you think to yourself, well, hold on, you you weren't in my position back then. You didn't know how I felt. You didn't know that I was eating my feelings because of you. You didn't know that I was using food as a form of comfort because I'm not going to say I had no friends. I had like one or two friends, but I didn't have as many friends as you did, you know? So don't tell me that, I didn't go through the things that I went through. If I said that I went through it, then you should see it and apologize for it. Because the fact that you've decided to go out of your way to message me, oh well, you didn't get bullied, obviously shows that you do feel guilty for something. So just accept that it happened. We were young back then, like everybody changes, everybody grows over time. Just accept that it happened, apologise and we can move on. But the fact that you're trying to dismiss the actual bullying is not very nice. I didn't have a great time in school. I used the library as my friend. Books were my friend. You know, I was so engrossed in like all the novels that we were given in English class and I'd read more than I had to because that was the only way I could enjoy school. Yeah, I read that Pride and Prejudice was your favourite novel at that time and you really related to Elizabeth Bennet. Oh, I did. I feel like I was Elizabeth Bennet. She was such a rebel, such an outlaw. She didn't want a man to determine her life and to determine her happiness. And I could relate to that so much at that time because I was going through this rebellious stage of boxing and hiding it from my parents and I could relate to her so much. Obviously, her story was a bit different, but how I imagined it was boxing was something that I, what's the word, something that... It was your form of rebellion in the same way that Lizzie Bennett's form of rebellion was not marrying the men that her parents wanted to set her up with. (laughs) Yes, thank you. (laughs) I was getting so tongue-tied. I I love it though. I love the idea of Elizabeth Bennett basically being like a boxing heroine. It's just so cool. (laughs) Yeah, it's so, so cool. 
But yeah, I loved books so much. And yeah, I, I think I survived. I survived being in secondary school because of my love for literature. And returning to the bullies, in your book, you talk about how, for instance, a popularity list was sent round comparing you and another girl. Yeah. Can you tell us about that? That was really hard, actually. There was a new student that had just joined in, and I think she was from Sri Lanka. I really apologies if, if you weren't. She came in, she was new, English wasn't that great, and a popularity chart decided to be made on who everybody preferred more and there was like no ticks next to my name and like loads of ticks next to hers obviously a few people in the class opted to not get involved for fear of uh, backlash from the bullies but whoever did ticked her name and it was really hard because it was left on my desk and it was like it was yeah it was really hard to see at first I didn't understand what it was but then obviously you put two and two together and you realise that was the outcome. And that wasn't that wasn't very pleasant, I think. One thing I think we should now is just be nice to one another. Things like that, it's just, it's not needed. What is the point of things like that? So yeah, just be nice to one another because you don't know what anybody is going through. I'm so sorry you went through that. I really am. A school can be such a cruel place and... It really does shape us in so many ways, but I think it's so inspiring that actually your reaction to seeing yourself on that wedding video was then to make a change in your life, wasn't it? So how did you first get into boxing? I saw myself on screen. The doctors had told my mum that I was borderline obese. So as a 12-year-old, your mum really doesn't want to hear something like that. And obviously the doctor said... She's not going down the right path. Her health could seriously deteriorate. My mum decided to get me a gym membership. My sister took me down to the gym. She signed me up for like a junior membership. And I remember I started going to the gym. But like I said, there wasn't social media to tell me what to use and what to do. I had a very supportive friend. Danica at the time who decided to sign up with me take me to the gym teach me about all the machines what they did which was amazing but after a while it just got really repetitive and really boring so I decided to test out classes I tested out loads of like spin I tested out body pump you know the one where it's kind of like a step you're kind of dancing and you're just yes. yeah that and then boxer size the very first time I signed up for boxes, I was so scared to walk in that I didn't walk in. So I just walked past the class. I saw who was in it. I got really scared and I just walked back the other way. And then I said, no, conquer your fears. Just do it. And I signed up again and I walked into the class for the second time. And I'm really glad that I did. I'm really glad that I put myself in that uncomfortable situation and conquered my fears because... If I didn't do it, I would have never have known that I loved boxing. And I think that's a good advice for people as well. Like put yourselves in uncomfortable situations because only then will you know if you truly want to do something. If you want to start competing for the first time, have a sparring session. It's after that first session you'll realise if you want to do it or not. But you have to give yourself the opportunity to decide yes or no. You shouldn't let fear hold you back from giving you that decision. So for you, it was instant. You loved boxing from the first time you tried it. Yes, 100%. I loved it. 
I loved the sense of community that was in that class. I loved how it made me feel, gasping for air, but in a good way. Very happy at the end of it, sweating loads. And I liked that somebody was telling me what to do, as opposed to me going to the gym, deciding this is what I'm going to do. So somebody had a session plan to say, this is what we're doing today. And I really liked that element of not thinking about what was going to happen that day and just going in to the unknown and being told what to do. And what happened when your family found out that you had been boxing regularly? I mean, they weren't happy. They were more upset of the lies and the deceit. My mum was just like, well, now it all makes sense. Every time, you know, you were coming home late, I now know why you were coming home late. She was just really upset that all the times I'd say things like, I'm late in the library or I'm going out with a friend or something like that. And she hated that I had told her those lies. And sorry, Ramla, sorry to interrupt, but why had you had to lie? Well, I had to lie because I knew that she wouldn't be okay with it. It was like a number of factors together. Like I knew she wouldn't be okay because of the community. The sport of boxing isn't for Muslim girls or isn't for Somali girls. And more than that, it was the fear of me getting hurt. You know, she lost a child in Somalia. We came to the UK and her brother's son, so my cousin, was stabbed and killed outside his school. Um, oh my gosh, yeah, I'm so, so sorry. Thank you, but yeah, it happened a really long time ago. I think she was just like really fearful that I'd get hurt. She'd taken us from danger and I was essentially just walking back into danger, like willingly. So those were the main reasons why I had to sort of lie about <laughs> where I was and what I was doing. So your family found out and they stage a sort of intervention but there was something in you that kept on doing it wasn't there yeah so I loved boxing I loved the outlet it gave me I didn't have to think about anything in that hour and a half two hours I was training so one of the first gyms that I went to before boxing I'd competed in like Thai boxing so like it has kicks and elbows and all sorts and actually my very first competition that wasn't boxing was in like 2006 so I've been competing a really long time (laughs) but yeah that gym like you walk in there was an amazing quote on the door that says leave your ego at the door and it's quite nice because I always read it as leave your ego and your problems at the door so like yeah. When I walk through the door, everything would be forgotten in, in that time. And it was such a great outlet for me. Like it made me forget about the stresses of home, the stresses of school, the stresses of life in that time. And that's why I loved it so much. It was like walking into a whole different world. So how did your family come round in the end? They came round because my uncle, who we don't mention in the book... <laughs> We've had to take his name out for safety reasons because he travels a lot back home. He found out, he called me up and he said, look, I'm so proud of you and I'm going to have a word with your mum. He's my mum's older brother and she looks up to him. So I think that was what changed everything for her. 
And now she's just so supportive. And I think she just needed that conversation from a family member to know that everything would be okay. Well, thank goodness you kept on boxing, Ramla, because you are now an Olympic boxer. Yeah. And you represent Somalia. Yes. And that brings us on to your second failure, which is not getting a medal at the Olympic Games. So... Tell us about that and why you chose it. I firstly want to say that big moments in your life, so this for me is like a huge moment, big moments in your life and and sort of failing at it, you shouldn't be defined by that. I just want to say that at the start. But for me, like, I built up the Olympics so much in my head and obviously I didn't medal. A lot of people were asking me, what was it like being there? Oh my God, so amazing, X, Y, and Z. And I would say to them, the African Olympic experience is so different to the Western Olympic experience in that, you know, there's no funding, no funding whatsoever. In the the five years that I've represented Somalia, I haven't received a single penny from Somalia. And that's not to say that they don't have it because they get given a lot of funding from the IOC. So the International Olympic Committee has given them hundreds and thousands of pounds of money that should have come towards me. But because of corruption within the country, it has never reached my bank account. So, yeah, in the last five years, I've literally had to support myself to get to the Olympics. So I model a lot. And a lot of people do ask me, wow, you're doing so much. And I always say to them, well, I have to, because if I didn't, I wouldn't be able to put a roof over my head. I wouldn't be able to eat a good meal or I wouldn't be able to fund this next competition or fund this training camp abroad. Like, I have to do it. It was really hard at the Olympics. I wasn't given any kit. So me and my husband, Richard, who is my coach, were the only two people in the whole village walking around in jeans, whereas everybody had, like, very schnazzy team tracksuits and team kits that they were walking around in. I couldn't take, you know, my physio, my osteo, my second coach. I couldn't take them with me. Again, because of corruption, they just didn't want to pay for them to go out there because... In order to pay for them, they'd have to spend more money. (laughs) They'd have to spend some money. And so it was really hard competing against these big, big nations that have a staff of hundreds. And it was just me and Richard who had to be my coach and my physio and my mental coach. And like he had to be. And my husband. (laughs) He had to be like all these things meshed into one. And so it was really, really hard. But I think the one thing I take from it is that I got myself to the Olympics on my own with no funding. And I guarantee a lot of people could never do the same. So that's one thing to definitely be so proud of. Do you feel overlooked or rejected in a way that, as you said, you don't have support financially and... It was a decision not to represent England, but that was kind of made for you. Is there an element of rejection there? 100%. It's like I said, I got to the Olympics on my own with no funding, no support staff of 100 or whatever. Imagine what I could have done with all the support, 
all the funding. Like I could have done so much. But yeah, there is an element of being rejected for sure. And it's not a nice feeling at all. But my life has always been destined to be hard. And I look forward to these challenges because when the wins do come, it makes those victories all the more sweeter. Do you actually think that, that your life is destined to be hard and always will be? I think so. There's so, <laughs> there's so much that's gone on that hasn't been easy. So after a while, you just get the hint. You're like, OK, well, I know it's going to be hard. My entire sporting career has been hard from having to do it in secret and not having family support. It was only after the Olympics and losing when I received that phone call from my mum to tell me that she'd watched, she'd gathered the family around and that they were so proud of me. It was only then that I realised how important support is. It has always been hard. Like, I never had that support and I've always had to do it in secret, much to the detriment of my sporting career because if I didn't have to do it in secret, I could have just been further along in my career than I am now. Do you think that mindset of accepting that life will be hard do you think that's a helpful mindset to have in certain ways because I think that sometimes there's a danger of expecting life to be easy and to come to you and that success will be guaranteed and actually it makes the disappointment even more acute when it comes whereas if you expect it to be difficult maybe that's actually weirdly a more positive mindset Yeah, I was just about to say that there's no element of surprise because when it is easy, it's good. You're like, oh, wow, I didn't expect this. Great that it's easy. But when there is this expectation of it's going to be hard, you make sure that you tick all the boxes going into it. You make sure that you've covered all the grounds because you're expecting it to be hard. Whereas when you're expecting it to be easy, there will be things that you'll forget about. And then there's this element of surprise of, oh, damn it, I didn't prepare for this. So it allows you to be more prepared, overly prepared, which is never a bad thing, I personally think. So, yeah, you know, it is good to have this acceptance of, you know, it's going to be hard, but I'm going to get through it anyways. Yeah, it's a sort of constructive pessimism, I think is actually really helpful. That is a good word, Um, I like that. (laughs) uh, Let's talk about your husband and your coach, Richard, because... Of all the people in your life, it feels like he just has never once questioned his belief in you. And one of the things that you said to me in your email outlining your failures is that you and Richard decided to put all of your life savings and sort of gamble on yourselves as a team. I mean, I just want to know more about that because what an amazing relationship to have in your life. Yeah, back in 2000, like I never ever for once thought that I could have a career, I could have a sporting career. And that, unfortunately, is how a lot of young girls will feel now because of the pay disparity between men and women and things like that. So back then, I never for once dreamed about having a career in sport, but it was only when I met my husband, Richard, that he said, look, you can do this. You're good enough. I believe in you. And so we, like I said, had to... Back then, modelling wasn't in my life. You know, I had to work a nine-to-five in a gym. Actually, it wasn't even nine-to-five. It was like 6 a.m. to 3 p.m., which is so hard. (laughs) But he said, look, you need to start training full-time. And the only way we can do it is if, if we spend our life savings. And it was a choice between 
you know, putting a down payment on a house or pursuing this career in boxing. And I was the level-headed one and I said, no, we should put a down payment on the house. And he said, no, we should pursue this boxing thing because I think you're good enough. And it wasn't until I heard that, like nobody has ever told me that until he did, and that I said, okay, let's do it. And, you know, I remember knocking on nearly everyone's door, like sponsor me, endorse me, you know, give me some money, but nobody would. And it's quite funny because I'm now a Nike-sponsored athlete. And back in 2016, I remember sitting in a room with one of Nike's advertising... Are they called an advertising agency? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Wyden Kennedy. And I remember, like, pitching to them about myself and they weren't interested. And fast forward till late 2017, early 2018, I met someone from Nike in the sports marketing team Daniel Smith, he believed in me and he signed me there and then. And I owe him a lot because being signed to Nike, there was this sort of ripple effect of, have you heard this saying of sponsors love sponsors? When you're sponsored, more sponsors want to get involved. (laughs) It's like a thing. So I then got sponsored by Nike and then all these other people wanted to get involved. So I owe Dan Smith a lot. He took a chance in me. He saw the potential that Richard saw in me, which was amazing. Before Nike decided to sign me up, we could only afford to pay one more month's rent on the flat. Wow. We was, yeah, otherwise we'd have just been homeless. And so, wow. yeah, so he just, he <laughs> it was like fate. He came at the right time. He saw the potential in me and he signed me up. And then, as they say, the rest is history. But... I had to take a chance on myself and it was really important. Even now, I'll say to anyone, if I'm going to bet on anything, I'll bet on myself. So I think that is something really important that people can take away from, that they might be scared to do something, but they should always bet on themselves. So you didn't win a medal at the Olympic Games in Tokyo, but what's next for you? And are you looking forward already to the next Olympics? So (laughs) I'm not sure if I'm going to do the next Olympics. It was really painful doing this one. Really? Um, (laughs) Well, yeah, like more than corruption, there's this level of incompetency from the Somali National Olympic Committee. They found out I was going to the Olympics six months ago, but they only gave me the heads up five weeks to go. So I had five weeks to prepare for the biggest tournament of my life. And I don't know if I want to go through that again, but I'm always a person of, you know, when I say something, when I put something in the universe, I make sure I try and fulfill it because I have to be accountable. So I'm not sure if I want to say now I'm going to Paris because (laughs) then I'd have to go. (laughs) Right. I get it. I get it. But there is a 50-50 chance. I'd love to be given the opportunity to train for it properly, you know, to do everything properly. And to just give myself more of a chance of doing better than I did at Tokyo. Mm. But the next goal for me is to just continue competing. I was telling my friends the other day, actually, I want my face to be everywhere that you guys get sick of it. (laughs) And they started laughing at me. (laughs) (laughs) That's one thing that I, I hope that I can achieve in the near future. So talking of friendship brings us to your final failure. And I'm so grateful to you for talking about this because 
I think it shows a lot of courage and it's about your self-perceived failure as a friend to your best friend, Danica, a decade ago. So tell us what happened there. Danica is the first friend I ever made in school. She was the first person to ever stand up for me in the face of bullies and she got a gym membership just for me because she knew how insecure I was about myself and my body. And about a decade ago, she tried to kill herself. And I remember that night very well because she sent me a message to say, it's been great knowing you. I love you so much. I hope to see you in the next life. And I just thought, what? Sorry, I'm not going to swear, but I just thought, what the F? So I remember that night I didn't sleep because I wanted to know what was going on. I remember ringing all the hospitals within the area to find out if she was admitted. And at like 4 a.m. she was admitted into Homerton Hospital. I went in, went to go see her. And I think for me, like, I'm not the best person to talk about mental health. Like, she was sectioned under the Mental Health Act and she was admitted into hospital. And I personally believe that I'm not the best person to talk about mental health because I don't understand it well enough. I come from an African household where we just never talk about things like that. We never talk about feelings and, you know, nobody understands anything to do with mental health. And I don't want to use that as an excuse for why I was never there, but... I wasn't there for her when she needed me the most. And for me, that is like one of the biggest failures in my life. She was always there for me growing up when I needed her the most. When she needed me the most, I wasn't there for her because I just I didn't understand what she was going through. Yeah. When you say that you weren't there for her, is that something that you think or is that something that she said to you? I think that's something that I think. We've never spoken about it. I mean, I try and see her once a week. She's written me down as her next of kin because she's been in and out of foster care her entire life. So she doesn't trust that many people in her life. Like, I I feel like the government has failed her time and time again. She was sexually abused by one of her foster carers younger when she was like underage I try to be there for her as much as possible and I think the failure that I'm talking about of me not being there for her when she needed me the most is just something that I think that I never did we've never spoken about it and she's never mentioned it but I always think that I could have done more and I think that's something that a lot of people might feel Like, I could have done more to save this person and I could have done more to save that person. But that's just how I feel. And I always feel like maybe if I did things wrong, she wouldn't have been in that position. But I think one thing that we need to understand is, it was like I was saying earlier, just be kind to everyone because you don't know what they're going through. And I just wish I knew what she was going through. Like, I wish... I was there for her to ask her, look, talk to me, open up to me, let me find out what's going on. But I was just so concerned with myself and what I was doing and I was competing that I just, I feel like I just forgot about her. And all the signs were there. I just never picked it up. So yeah, I I feel like this is a big failure for me. And I don't care how bad it makes me look. It's something that I wanted to be honest about. Yeah, I I can't thank you enough for 
your honesty and your vulnerability in this failure. Mm. And I also think that you sound like an incredible friend because you have taken the time to reflect on what happened and whether you could have done more. And I'm not sure that many people would do that. And I, I wonder if I can ask you, you mentioned at the beginning that you had asked Anika for her permission to talk about this. Yeah. What did she say? She said, of course, if it helps someone else, then talk about my pain and talk about my struggles because if it just helps one person, then that is a beautiful thing. And that is just the kind of person that she is. She's, I've mentioned in the book, she's, she's mentioned in quite a big chapter in the book in that she's always been that person that's been the first person to help anyone. She was the first person to help me when I was getting bullied in school. And that's just how she's always been. And the fact that she said, you know, if it helps someone, it's just a testament to how she is as a person. She's just always been that person, help first. How is she now? She is really good. She's on all these medications that I don't know how to pronounce. So I'm probably not going to try to pronounce it because I'll get it wrong. But she's doing really well. She's finally graduated from university which is such an amazing achievement for her because she's been in university since 2009, I want to say, 2009, 2010. And because she was sectioned, she had to keep delaying it. The university was very understanding, which is amazing that they would just put her studies on hold and then she'd go back to where she left off. But because she was in and out of hospital for such a long time, her studies were just slower than most people. But she's finally graduated. She's going to go to her graduation and I'll be there cheering her on. I'll probably be there embarrassing her. Like, you know, proud parents do. I'm not her parent, but like, you know, like proud parents would do. But yeah, I'm so glad that over everything that she's been through, she had a goal of going to university and getting a degree. And with everything that she's been through, I'm glad that she's managed to achieve that dream. Mm. I think that, so many people struggle to be there for a friend or a relative who is going through severe mental health issues because it can be very difficult to know what to do, but it can also be frightening mm. that you don't feel that you'll be enough. So I wonder, having been through something like this, what advice would you give a friend or a relative of someone going through what Danica did how would you want to have been there for her? I personally wish that when I saw all the signs, I took her to one side and I asked if she wanted to talk and, you know, just allowed her the opportunity to talk and just listen, not interrupt, because everybody goes through different things. So, you, you know, it's, it's really important to listen and to not add your two cents on top. So, yeah, I, I really wish that I took her to the side when I noticed all the signs and just talked and just been there for her and just been kinder to her and just wanted her to share her story with me. And I think that's really important in that if people are noticing friends and relatives going through similar things, to take them to one side and just talk. I think talking is so important. We often neglect that now because all we want to do is scroll on our phones. But yeah, take friends and family to one side and just talk. And I feel like they just want someone to listen more than anything. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that 
you weren't used to talking about mental health issues because of your family and where you came from. Why is that, do you think? I think mental health is just not something that African households talk about. I couldn't tell you why. I couldn't bring up bullying to my family at home because I just feel like they would have been like, well, suck it up. If you'll get bullied, okay, why don't you bully them back? Will be their answer. So it's just, (laughs) (laughs) which is not the best answer. But yeah, I didn't have this understanding of mental health because of it. I mean, I guess also going back to how we started this interview, the fact that your mother... And her way of coping with unimaginable trauma was not to talk about it and to get on with life and be grateful for the fact that each day would come. And maybe that's to do with it as well. This sense of let's not dwell on the tragedy and let's be thankful for what we have. Yeah, it's just get on with it. Don't moan. Whatever happens, suck it up. Don't complain. Just get on with it. And that's how it's always been in my house, in my cousin's house, like relatives, aunties, uncles. It's just always been like that. Don't moan, suck it up and get on with it. And I think that's why there isn't this sense of talking about these issues that are so important. You just, you can't talk about it because you feel like all you can do is just suck it up and get on with it. Mm. But it sounds like you are changing that. So that's another way in which you're an incredible trailblazer because clearly you are talking about it and you've chosen this podcast to talk about it. And I'm really grateful to you for that. Thank you. I mean, I'm trying to educate myself as much as possible. I think education into these matters is so important because you won't necessarily understand what someone else is going through, but educating yourself and trying to learn what they're going through is really important and also like listening to what they're going through is really important as well so I'm trying to educate myself on everything that she's going through so that when we do have these conversations I can be a little bit more understanding than what I was a decade ago. Thank you Ramla and thank you Danika for allowing us to talk about this I really appreciate it. I have a very important question for you now, just before we conclude this interview, which is your book is published by Murky, which is Stormzy's imprint. Have you met Stormzy? I did. I met him (laughs) at the GQ Awards. I met him at the GQ Awards last week. I was trying to find where the uh, bathroom was and then I saw him and then I said... You know, obviously I went up to him. I said, oh, I'm a huge fan. I said who I was. And he said, we're writing a book together, aren't we? Uh, like Murky's. And I said, yeah, 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 you know me. So I was really like happy about that. But yeah, that was the one and only time that I've ever met him. You know, I hear he's like a busy guy, which is understandable. But yeah, I'm really glad to have finally have met him. Is it true that you're writing a novel next? Oh, mate. <laughs> Let me just, let me get this one out first. Let this one go out first. This one is, I feel like writing this book, I did it in like the right time. There was this pandemic, competitions came to a standstill. I didn't have much to do at home. So, you know, I had to put pen to paper and just put my thoughts in a paper and try and be as inspirational as possible and it was important for me because I was trying to help as many people as possible like I feel like yes it's talking about 
sporting moments that I've learnt lessons from, but the everyday person can use those lessons and transfer it into their normal lives. So that was the kind of book that I wanted to write that, you know, didn't alienate or exclude anyone. And I wanted it to be quite easy to read as well. Like it was, it's the kind of book that I wish I had when I was in secondary school. And I feel like young adults can pick it up and read it and it would hopefully help them as well. But novel, I'm not sure. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Watch this space. Um, is there any similarity between boxing and modelling? There is like, I want to say a little bit of similarity. Obviously, the brutality and all of that is not the same, but there is this like element of discipline, element of focus that, you know, you have to have in the ring and you sort of you have to have when you're modelling as well. So there are, I want to say there are some similarities, definitely. Uh, I, at the top of my head, those are the only ones I can think of. Do you feel like you have to project a certain image in the ring in the same way that you have to project it when you're modelling? No. So I just always try to be true to myself as much as possible because being someone else and trying to be someone else can only last a certain amount of time before someone realises it's not you. So always just be authentic to yourself and always be like true to yourself as much as possible and just be yourself be yourself in the ring be yourself when you're modeling and people will fall in love with it I guarantee you wow that's such a good lesson for everyone just to strive to be your authentic self and finally I want to ask you another crucially important question do you have a favorite boxing movie boxing movie oh yes (laughs) I really love I know you want me to say Rocky, so I'm going to say Rocky, <laughs> but I really love Million Dollar Baby as well. And there's oh, this amazing like documentary as well called Shadow Boxer. Not a lot of people know it, but it was the inspiration behind Million Dollar Baby. Because you must have had to contend with so many isms, sexism, mm. racism, mm. probably ageism, because mm. you are operating in a very male dominated field so I love the fact that you chose Million Dollar Baby there oh yeah such a good movie an amazing movie and shows that women can do it they can do what they set their minds to just as you show that to everyone else Ramla Ali I am so grateful that you came on How to Fail thank you so so much thank you for having me no honestly it's been so fun talking with you today so thank you for having me If you enjoyed this episode of How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, I would so appreciate it if you could rate, review and subscribe. Apparently, it helps other people know that we exist.